I will say that when we bought our house in November after we paid off those student loans, I've had a few people make comments like, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that to, to this new house? And I was telling them, because that costs money. It's going to take time. We're going to grow into it. And that has confused some people because like, well, you can't just finance the furniture. Why don't you just buy it now? Uh, and so it, it's been more interesting actually two years out than it was right when I finished. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week, my guest is Dr. Jimmy Turner. We talk about the challenges faced by physicians when they transition from being a broke med school student to a resident who's just scraping by to suddenly making more money in a year than you've made in the previous 30 years of your life combined. If you want to be well-equipped to handle suddenly being a high-earning physician and learning how to use that transition as an opportunity to build real wealth, then you won't want to miss this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the show uh, the physician philosopher, also known as Dr. Jimmy Turner. The last time that Jimmy was on the show, uh, he was still uh, an international man of mystery, <laughs> joining <laughs> anonymously. Uh, but Jimmy is uh, an attending anesthesiologist at Wake Forest. He also has a, a really popular physician finance and lifestyle blog um, called The Physician Philosopher. So check that out, thephysicianphilosopher.com. He has turned into a personal friend over the last couple of years, and we're just going to spend a little bit of time today unpacking um, some interesting topics pertaining to um, rich doctor problems, pertaining to career transitions, and other uh, sort of questions that young physicians are frequently dealing with as they're trying to build careers, gain clinical expertise, maintain sanity, have a family life, successful marriage, raise kids, all that stuff. So Jimmy, thanks a lot for being here. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate having me on. It's uh, something I've been looking forward to a lot. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit, because I think the last time that I gave you an intro, it was a little bit more guarded. So talk a little bit about your current scope of responsibilities at Wake and, and the other things you got going on. Yeah. So um, it's been an exciting last several months, I guess. Uh, the book came out in I think February. That's and right. with, with that, I became not anonymous on my site. So That's I got right. to have a uh, anxiety provoking <laughs> meeting with my chair and <laughs> yeah. got his permission to uh, put my name on my site and on my book and to uh, stamp Wake Forest's name on it. Great. Uh, so that was actually fantastic. It's probably the peak moment of my career fulfillment so far. Awesome. What was it like uh, walking into that boardroom, kind of not knowing what was going to happen? <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was actually really scary because, um, you know, he has the ability to tell me he wants me to shut it down. He's my chair. Right. And so I knew that he is a bit of a forward thinking person. So I thought that it might be okay, but I, I, I just didn't know. I didn't know what the hospital would think about it. So when I talked to him, I was, you know, obviously guarded and nervous and, and anxious, but at the end of the day, he, he found value in it. And he thought that uh, it's something that not a lot of other people are doing. And yeah. in fact, very, very few people in academics are doing That's most right. of the people out there writing this stuff are in private practice. And so it was a way to separate wake um, yeah. as a as a hospital and as a as a training medical center. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it was, it was great. But by, by the end of the meeting, I went from, you know, being completely a nervous wreck at the beginning to just being on cloud nine, I, I was so excited that that he thought that it was worthwhile. That's great. Did you find that some of your colleagues kind of coming out of the woodwork say, oh my gosh, I was, I've been reading you for a long time. And you know, I, I haven't had a ton of that. Uh, I've, I've had some residents come up to me and yeah. say that, um, in terms of people at work that I work with, uh, I, a good number of them had already known. Okay. Um, you know, I have probably eight, uh, people in my section. So in the regional anesthesia section that's in the anesthesia department and, and most of them already knew. Okay. Uh, and I had some close friends that are in the other sections that, that knew as well. So it wasn't a huge coming out to them. It just wasn't something I publicly discussed. And some, certainly wasn't something I discussed with any administrators right. uh, before, before that. <laughs> cool. So, but it all worked out. So that's great. Yeah, it was great. So, uh, you know, in addition to obviously being a blogger, you're a physician, uh, you're at a, in a training hospital. So what's, what's your uh, scope of clinical and uh, teaching duties like right now? Yeah. So uh, clinically, I do about 60% regional anesthesia. So I know your audience is familiar with those terms, but uh, and 40% general OR. So it, it depends. It varies week by week. And uh, clinically, I just kind of go where they put me. In terms of teaching, I was recently granted the opportunity to um, have a, a personal finance curriculum for the fourth year medical students. 
at Wake, uh, which we've extended to the CRNAs and the PA students as well. Nice. Um, and so that will be kicking off in January of 2020. And your your listeners may not know you'll you'll be taking a part being a, a speaker in the inaugural uh, curriculum. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to that. That's going to be fun. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited about it too. And uh, it'll be a 10 week course. And so I'll be running that from January until March, the Tuesday before match day. And uh, I'm really nervous about it. I'm really excited about it. I have lots of mixed emotions, uh, but I hope it goes well. I hope that it's helpful. And uh, I hope that we can increase financial literacy for the students at Wake. Uh, so that's, that's really the big educational thing that I'm working on right now. Okay, awesome. And uh, so you just got a new crop of uh, interns and everybody else, but all the residents are bumping up a year. So what's what's the climate like right now? My my wife and I always joke that July 1st is always the most interesting time to get a surgery because you get all these newly minted uh, physicians running around that <laughs> yeah, have varying yeah. degrees of uh, expertise. Yeah, no, there's always, there's always something that happens in July, uh, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's usually well kept. In, in our anesthesia department, our attendings sit one-on-one with the the new CA ones in the OR for a couple of weeks, two to four weeks, and then maybe four to six or four to eight weeks. They're one-on-one with a classmate and the attending may have one room or uh, two rooms if they have an upper level with them. So we, we have a pretty, uh, you know, close look on people the first four to six weeks they're starting at wake. I know not everywhere does that. Yeah. Uh, and by the time they finish their training, they get a tremendous amount of autonomy, but to begin with, you know, we, we, we keep a close eye on them in July. Yeah. I know they do that at Penn. My wife was telling me about the one-on-one for the first month with an attending just to get everything dialed in. I it's think probably makes, a smart way to do it. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, today was what I'm putting in air quotes is like rich doctor problems. Okay. Um, one of the things that comes with being a physician, and this is true in, I would say, several other high earning professions is that when you make a lot of money in, in a profession where people know it. So people can perceive it, people at least suspect. And obviously you and I both know just because you make a lot doesn't mean that your finances are at all in order. But That's right. but it can change the dynamics of relationships, it can change the way your family treats you, it can change the way it kind of works when you go out to the bar with your friends. Um so I'm curious to kind of unpack this a little bit and what has your experience been like moving through med school as like a broke med student to a heavily indebted resident uh, to, you know, now an attending who's, you know, has aggressively paid off student loans and trying to push that net worth needle into positive territory. How has that, how has that journey um, happened for you? And, and how has this dynamic of like, you're a doctor, a rich doctor in air quotes, and have, how have you engaged with that idea with your, your friends and family? Yeah. So it's, um, I guess a little bit to unpack there. It, I, I've been on two different journeys. One was becoming financially literate, which I didn't do until my fellowship. So that's been, I guess, three, three and a half years now. Uh, but before then, I was very financially illiterate. I knew nothing about money. I knew nothing about personal finance. And so during medical school, I was poor, but I didn't live as poor as I should have. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I racked up more debt than I, than I should have come out of medical school with. And I came out with less than average. Uh, so that was nice. But all things said, you know, I kind of two different journeys going on where I had the journey to, you know, making a real attending paycheck and the journey to become financially literate. And mm -hmm. I'm extremely fortunate that those things happen about the same time. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't, you know, do a lot of the classic doctor mistakes right when I finished. Yeah. And because I didn't do that and I kept things in check, uh, you know, so I was talking about the 10% rule. So I, I took a 10% increase my post-tax pay or my post-tax increase, I should say. I took 10% of that and spend it on whatever I wanted. And then 90% I put towards, you know, paying down my student loans and investing. And because of that, my lifestyle didn't look that improved from the outside perspective. So people were surprised when they'd come over to our house and I was still living in the same house that I lived in as a resident and as a medical student. Okay. Um, so to be clear, whenever you got the raise as an attending, that big jump of, you know, a couple hundred K potentially, you took 10% of that jump. Mm -hmm. So call it, I don't know, I'm, we'll use round numbers. Maybe it was 20K um, or 25K and you went and did something fun or. Yeah. So you can do this two different ways. You can do it on an annual perspective. So the way that I did it was on a monthly perspective. My post-tax pay was going up by $10,000. Okay. And so I took $1,000 a month and I, I, I don't recommend this to anybody, by the way. <laughs> uh, I financed a car and I bought a country club membership for my family. Okay. And so that ended up being a little bit less than a thousand dollars right at it. 
And then the other $9,000 I put towards my student loan. So I paid off $200,000 in 19 months. I put it towards investing. Which is incredible, by the way. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. And so we've had great success. So people, they have all of these rules about personal finance and like to put people in a box and I was a philosophy major, so I'm not that way. I don't like to do that. I like to give people guardrails and yeah. you know, they can bend the rules and do whatever they want as long as they're achieving their goals. Yeah. And so I, I did something really financially stupid. I bought a car, bought, I financed a car that'll be paid <laughs> off next month. And, uh, yes, congratulations. Yes. and so we'll be debt free outside the mortgage. Okay. Um, but, uh, that said, that's not a smart financial decision. I'm not going to pretend that it is. Yeah. However, I was still able to achieve great financial success and, you know, improve our net worth from negative two hundred and ten thousand dollars to like positive, yeah. you know, a hundred uh, in two years. Yeah. Uh, so it's been it's been a wild ride. But that said, when I started, we we didn't have this just giant boom in lifestyle. So we didn't have people coming over all the time and asking us for money mm-hmm. or asking us. You know, I was just the same old neighbor I'd been for the last ten years when I didn't have a high income, and I happened to have a different car that went in the driveway. Uh, but outside of that not much else changed. So I didn't have a ton of pressure. I will say that when we bought our house in November, after we paid off those student loans, um, I've had a few people make comments like, Hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that to, to this new house? And I always tell them, cause that costs money, yeah. you know? And so I, uh, at this point, you know, we have, we don't have a dining room table. We don't really have furniture on the back deck. Like there's several things that we still want to do, but it's going to take time. We're going to grow into it. And that has confused some people. Cause they're like, well, can't you just finance the furniture? Why don't you just buy it now? <laughs> uh, and so it, it's been more interesting actually two years out than it was right when I finished. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, one of the, th- one of the, the genesis of this question for me, I was talking to a friend, uh, it was a couple months ago now, and he was talking about, he was the first, um, uh, he might've been the first college grad in his family and mm. his wife is also a physician. And, uh, they were talking about, um, now that they are both MDs and as you know, being a resident, it doesn't mean you're making a lot of money, but in their family, they had attained the highest level of education of any, of any of their immediate or extended family. And so sure. there was this, uh, dynamic that they were trying to navigate where, uh, all of a sudden they were the successful white coats who, mm-hmm. um, were sort of seen to be a, the safety net. Uh, whether implicitly or explicitly in, in different contexts. And they were trying to navigate what does it look like for us to engage with our family and care about and support the people who we do love and feel like we want to do that for, but also build a, a life that we've kind of worked hard to, Yeah, we want to make it look the way we want to make it look. <laughs> yeah. Is that something that you've had to deal with at all? Maybe so not with I, the family, but beyond that? I've, I've dealt with it a little bit. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've certainly had friends and colleagues and residents that have had to deal with it more than I have. Um, you know, I, I think that where we notice it the most is, is when we don't do something that other people want us to do and they want to get into the weeds about why. And we say, well, it's because that's not in our budget right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't do a line by line budget, but I know that that's not in it. I'm not going <laughs> to the beach this summer because I can't afford it. Yeah. Uh, you know, we took a trip to St. Lucia. That's what we did with our vacation money this year. Right. And so uh, that, that, that does produce some interesting conversations because people just assume that money grows on trees when you're a doctor and that you have as, as much as you want to spend. Uh, I've had other colleagues who have interesting family dynamics where they've had big problems with this. You know, people take care of their kids and they want their kids to have certain lifestyles. And when, by kids, I mean their, their grandchildren. Yeah. And that's a really tough situation because um, when someone has a certain expectation for what your life should look like right. and they're an integral part of your life and you see them every day or friends or you know, whoever this might be, it's challenging because they don't understand how you can have such a high income and not be able to spend or afford the lifestyle that they think that you should have. Um, and yeah. so lots of boundary setting conversations yeah. and you know, goals and sitting down and explaining the reasons behind what you're doing. Cause not everybody's life is nobody's life is going to look the same. Right. Um, so yeah, but absolutely. I, I definitely know people that have really struggled with that and, yeah. uh, it can be, it can be an issue. Yeah. And something that I, uh, encourage this friend and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this is to just, the first thing you want to do is make sure that you and your spouse are on the same page. Cause you're both oh, going to sure. be getting it from your own families 100%. and you need to be of one accord. And what are our priorities? What are the things that we want to spend, not only our money, but also our time? How are we going to orient our lives? And then for what types of uh, 
requests or in which conversations are we going to want to engage to support, you know, throw a couple hundred dollars into my nephew's 529 for his birthday versus um, give my sister a couple hundred dollars to help her throw a sweet 16 party for her daughter. Like those, the way those priorities weigh out may be different. And if you and your spouse have agreed upon previously, like this is the priority for our family. This is what we value in terms of relationship and time and money spent. And these are the things that are going to make the cut and not make the cut. That yeah. can be, uh, you can nip a lot of those conversations in the bud potentially. Yeah. You know, I think that being on a, you know, having a unified front is, is more important than anything else. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I encourage people to do is probably the post that I link to most on my side is the kinder questions, the three yeah. kinder questions, K I N D E R, uh, where it, it basically goes through the process of helping you figure out what's important to you. And, and as you go through that, you'll notice there are lots of things on there that people tell you are important, uh, houses and cars that, that you never talk about because at the end of the day, those aren't the important things. So you may choose to value how early you're financially independent and retire or your kid's college education or paying down the mortgage or other, other things that take money. Uh, and at the end of the day, there's only so much money that happens and you have to decide how much that to spend on yourself, how much that's spent on the future, how much to spend on other people. And you know what my wife and I really try hard to do is to let our money reflect our values. And so, you know, that results in us tithing 10%, you know, off the top, uh, for our church. And that's going to involve that probably increasing over the future and then giving other people even outside that money. And that technically slows down our progress towards our savings goals, but we don't miss the money because it's the right thing to do. Um, now explaining that to someone else, that's an interesting conversation because as long as my wife and I are on the same page and we understand our goals and what we're doing and that we're trying to help people and also save for our future, it doesn't matter a whole lot to me what other people think. Um, and so I try to have the conversation if I can, but I've definitely had family and friend conversations where the person just doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, that is, is challenging. Um, but like you said, I think that the important thing is that you and your spouse are on the same page. And if you are, then you can kind of weather the storm of any difficulties that come up and hopefully, you know, nip it in the butt if it's possible. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and what I've found is that between your mid-20s, when you're wrapping up med school and doing residency, and then your mid-30s, there's, there's a, that's a hugely formative period for you as a physician and as a person. And what happens is, you know, you're in your 20s, you're just trying to spend as little as possible. Uh, find a place that you can afford and then try to pay $2,000 cash for your car that hopefully is going to last you six years. And then by the time you're in attending, um, the opportunity set opens up and you go from just wanting to crush your debt, yeah. which is like a very single-minded thing, which is where my wife and I right now are right now, which is like we got a lot of student loans. And sure. it's very easy to know what our goals and priorities are because it's literally at the end of the month, shovel all the extra money <laughs> over to uh, you know Common Bond or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. and then we're going to just keep on trucking. And then once you kind of cross over that precipice, which you've recently crossed, yeah. um, where the student loans are all of a sudden are gone, now we have to talk about goals and priorities in a new way. And, yes. and that, uh, it's sort of like revisiting some fundamental assumptions, I think. So how has yeah. that gone for you and your wife? Yeah. So that's why it's important to, to revisit these conversations exactly like you said. And so my wife and I tried to sit down and, and have conversations about what we're going to do with additional money. So next month when we pay off both of our cars and, um, our mortgage free, you know, debt free outside of our mortgage, we're going to have cash flow, you know, a couple extra thousand dollars a month. So where does that money go? Oh, yeah. and my, my kid, my five-year-old who's starting kindergarten in August or September uh, is also not going to be in daycare anymore. So we have additional money coming from that. And when, I mean, this is, this is the powerful part of the story, right? When all your debt starts to get destroyed and all of a sudden you have tons of cash flow coming in that you can decide what to do with it. That sounds great. And yeah. it is, but now you have to make the big decisions about what to do with it. Are you yeah. going to keep pounding money into your savings so that you can get to financial independence even sooner? Uh, are you going to uh, give more money to other people? Mm-hmm. Are you going to you know, give to charities? Like exactly what that's going to look like. And so it involves lots of sitting down on the, you know, the back porch and having conversations and trying to figure out uh, what's important to us. Totally. Now, yeah, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. I was going to say that's a, a perfect sort of segue back to what you just mentioned is the, the kinder questions, which is this 
it's three questions that we actually discussed the last conversation you and I had yeah. about yeah. sort of excavating your personal values in, in the context of a family doing the same to be able to align your money and your time with the things that are really important. And it only gets more and more important as you experience more material abundance because that yeah. is really a great opportunity and it can go really well for your family or it can be a cause of like uh, conflict and resentment oh, yeah. and... You know, if the spouses aren't on the same page and one is looking at the other's credit card bill that they're running up every month, that can be, that can just be incredibly destructive. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and and I'd be lying to you if I said that after I started figuring this stuff out that we haven't had any financial stress. I mean, that's not something that goes away because ultimately you have to decide what to do with the money. And um, it's challenging. I, I think the more that you learn about personal finance, the harder it becomes not to particularly nowadays with, you know, financial independence and the fire movement and everything. Um, it is challenging not to want to squirrel away every dollar that you can. And at some point it's not healthy. I mean, right. you need to spend some money, you need to go on vacations, right. you need to do some things that are enjoyable now. Um, and you can, it cuts both ways. You can just not save it all because you're just living for the moment or, you know, squirrel away everything and not enjoy today. And there's a balance somewhere in between mm -hmm. those two points. And that requires lots of conversations and uh, honesty and, and, you know, hopefully not too many hurt feelings. Yeah, totally. And that's something my wife and I have discovered, you know, I can tell when I pick her up, uh, you know, like after a long day and we're, we're headed home, it's like, well, we could just go home and cook dinner. And I know that she'll be passed out in like 15 minutes. And this is like the only time I might get to see her in a three Residency. or four day span. Or, you know, maybe we'll stop somewhere and go out to eat and like pay 40 or 50 bucks that we might not, I would otherwise be inclined to not do that. But the fact is like, I'm, I'm kind of buying time with my spouse and trying to care yeah. for her and making her not like, uh, participate in cooking dinner and whatever. And, uh, that is definitely like below, like sort of paying off our student loans. The next thing that we do value is time together. And if we can Absolutely. buy back a little bit of that, even as a, you know, on the resident salary, it's, uh, it's something that I don't even, you know, I'm quite happy to, to do that. Well, and, and that makes sense, right? Because ultimately the reason that you're saving for your future is so that you can have the time to do what you want. Yeah. And so it makes no sense to give away all your time right now in order to do that. Uh, every, there are things in life that are worth something that have intrinsic value and yes, they cost money, yeah. but 100% absolutely they're worth it. And taking your wife to dinner is probably one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> no question. Um, cool. I want to pivot a little bit and let's talk about imposter syndrome. I know this okay. is something that you and I have spoken about a little bit. And so, um, this is the idea that you feel like you're a fraud, essentially that you're in a very like high functioning, demanding vocational environment where you're, you have to make very important decisions and you as a physician and you know, me as a finance person, this is translates well across, I think all different professions. Um, don't feel well, you kind of look around and think like, Surely somebody else is going to be the one who's making this decision. It can't really be me because I am utterly unprepared either from sure. like training or from just, you know, personality. Like I, I can't handle it. And uh, it's funny. My wife was even telling me yesterday, she, you know, she's in the ICU right now and uh, having to have these very intense end of life conversations yeah. uh, with families. And there's, you know, there's no attending around because they're doing other things that are also very important. And she was just explaining to me the gravity of, like, wow, I'm, I'm helping a family, like, you know, navigate what, what might be arguably like the most critical or difficult decision that they may ever have to make. Yeah. Uh, and that is something that I'm sure that they don't have a chapter in a, in a book in med school to kind of teach you how to do that. So how has that been for you and how have you helped younger physicians to sort of work through that? Well, to answer the second question first, how I help is by letting them know that we all struggle with it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm three years out from residency. I still struggle with it. I think that I'll probably struggle with it my entire career. And if I don't, then I've lost the humility that helps me be good at my job. That's absolutely right. So, yeah. you know, I, I try to normalize it, honestly. Um, and, you know, I also try to, I poke fun at this a little bit. So there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, mm. which is, uh, if you haven't, if you don't know what that is, please Google Dunning-Kruger effect uh, and look at the images. There's this great image where it has basically experience on the x-axis and confidence on the y-axis. And <laughs> and as you start and you get some experience and you start to feel pretty good about what you do, your confidence skyrockets, even though you don't have a lot of experience because you just don't know what's out there yet. And then you get to the peak, which is called Mount Stupid. <laughs> and from that point, you've continued to fall. As you get more experience, your confidence 
drops. And so that, that, that curve right there is where imposter syndrome happens because you've had some things happen. You've uh, potentially made some mistakes. You have uh, not performed the optimal anesthetic for, you know, a patient or whatever it happens to be. You don't handle a conversation in the ICU well. And as that happens, you start to lose your confidence, even though your experience and your knowledge are increasing. And eventually you get enough experience and knowledge that there is light at the end of the tunnel and it does start to get better. Mm-hmm. But I think even those doctors, you know, when they look back, they can tell you story after story after story of, of situations that weren't optimal. They weren't handled as well as they could have. And I think everybody suffers a little bit from <clears throat> imposter syndrome where they feel like they're going to be caught as a fraud. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that that happens in a lot of areas of my life where, you know, people are asking me for advice on a given topic. And uh, I think that the two ways to combat that are to be honest when you don't know something uh, and to ask for help when you it's not in your wheelhouse. So mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to ask other people for things or to say, hey, you know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, uh, even to a trainee. Uh, and that allows them to see that, hey, th- this person's an attending that I respect, I hope. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, uh, and, and I think that really helps them because they realize, oh, you know, he's, I I look up to that person and and they are, uh, struggling with the same things that I struggle with. Yeah. So that's a big part of it for me as a, as an attending, honestly. Yeah. And I, you know, to be honest, I've had a lot of those similar experiences for me. It's, you know, I'm sitting across the kitchen table from, uh, a couple physicians or like a doctor lawyer or like very, very (laughs) smart people who are in many ways, just way smarter than me. And I'm there. We're talking about like personal things. We're talking about their financial future and financial foundations and relationships and marriage and like how do we thrive as a family? Yeah, and I'm like I have that same moment of like, are you asking my opinion about these things? Like I've been married for a year now and, <laughs> um, you know, and I and I have to remind myself, you know, I do have some technical proficiency in ways that they yeah. just have never had the time to study. But but I also have a healthy sense of, wow, I have so much to learn. Uh, yeah. and I learn things every day, even in things that yeah. I'm an expert in. Uh, all the time I learn things and I'm, that's one of the things that makes life beautiful, right? Is I completely agree. Being able to continually learn and grow and take new experiences and have them as part of your story. Yeah. And, and I, in my experience, I think that uh, knowledge and experience are very different than wisdom, right? So I think that people can ask for your advice, even if you're not in their same exact situation or you haven't had their exact same life experience, yeah. you could still provide really good insight and you know, speak some truth into their lives. I do think that, uh, you know, as you gain experience in those areas that your, your advice or your wisdom may change a little bit. Mm. Uh, but I think, uh, yeah, it's constantly a struggle. You constantly feel like, am I the best person to really help sort, sort out this problem? Um, and, uh, I think it's also helpful having people, colleagues, partners, spouses, uh, who are around you and can tell you, look, you're actually really good at that. I know that you don't think that I know that your self-confidence is abysmal, but (laughs) that was actually really good what you did right there, you know, and and having that affirmation is, is important. Have you had mentors or colleagues, uh, who have been an important part of your journey in overcoming imposter syndrome who have contributed to that for you? Yeah. I mean, there's certain people, you know, my section that have served as colleagues and mentors and even through training. And they're a big reason why I stayed away because I, I just loved working with them. I still love working with them. So they've been uh, instrumental in helping me deal with, you know, some of this stuff and, and also showing me the ropes. And, you know, when I have questions, they can answer them. But at the same time, they, they've supplied the same experience that I've just talked about for my residents where they were honest when they didn't know things or when it wasn't their wheelhouse. But yeah, absolutely. I think that mentoring goes goes a long way in this area mm-hmm. um and i know that one of the areas in which you mentor in addition to obviously the clinical ways is with finances and a lot of young doctors come to you for advice either in person or through the interwebs and uh this is an area in which you've grown in a lot of you know you gained a lot of influence and i think your voice has been a really it's been a unique one and a valuable one that's one that a lot of people have benefited from. And I think that's one of the reasons that you and I connect so well is because it's not all about like, how do we stuff as much money in a bank account as possible, but understanding the physician's um, situation as a whole and looking at the whole human and knowing Mm -hmm. that we're not just like economically maximizing machines, but, uh, but there's a, there's other parts of our, you know, mental and relational and spiritual 
and physical selves that are really important to bring along for yeah. that journey. Um, yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about a conversation or two you've had recently with somebody who's come to you looking for some input in one of those ways. And if it's interacted with finances or if it's interacted with, you know, burnout or handling the stresses of and the rigors of training or and, and what kind of advice were you able to offer in those instances? Yeah. So I think that the question that I get probably the most has to do with student loans. And so mm -hmm. I've had actually back to back conversations where the right thing to do was the exact opposite for both of them. And it's not really my style to tell people what to do. It's my style to f frame things in a way that they kind of understand the problem and then discuss the pros and cons, just like consenting a patient for a procedure. Right. I ultimately want them to make the decision. I just want them to have the information in order to do that. And so I had back to back days where two different residents came and asked me about putting extra money towards their loans, uh, which first of all, if you're able to put extra money anywhere as a resident, you're, you're already winning. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I was really, I was really proud of these two residents to begin with. They both, they both were on the right track, but one of them, uh, had a very high student loan burden. They were in repay. And so, you know, I talked to them about putting extra money towards that and what, what would happen to every dollar if they did that, given that they're getting 50% of the interest subsidy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talked about them getting hundred percent of the benefit if they put it somewhere else. And, uh, they also, the, the student loan debt burden wasn't so high that they wouldn't be able to refinance and repay these things when they finished. And so that was kind of one situation. And, and the other, uh, the person had, you know, very, very low amount of debt. They were in repay, but their monthly payment was basically already covering their interest, uh, because it was, it was just not a lot of debt. And so yeah. I was trying to explain to them, like, why just go ahead and knock this out. Like if that's an important goal for you, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think about getting a guaranteed 6.8% on your return versus getting lucky and investing in the market and making better. And, um, you know, so I, th I think that it was just completely ironic to me that I happen to have these conversations back to back, uh, you know, and, and basically what they came away with were, was the exact opposite advice. And the reason why is because their situations were not the same. Right. Um, so it's not, there's never a one size fits all answer to most, you know, to any question really. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. And let me just make a brief aside here. And it, it, for any listeners out there who are wondering what the heck these terms are that we're using, we're going to do uh, an episode on student loans coming up in a few weeks, hopefully, uh, where we're going to unpack what is what does it mean to have student loans and what is the current state of student loans and for physicians and in the various career trajectories for anesthesia and pain, how might that play out? Uh, and, it, and it's very important. You should either you should either be crushing your loans or paying as little as possible to move towards yep. forgiveness. And if you're not doing one of those two things actively having made that decision, you're probably wasting a lot of money. So yep. um, I wanna come back to that in the future, but just a, a little teaser. Anybody out there who isn't quite sure what their loan situation is, you either wanna do one or the other. So yeah. it, it's important to, to be thinking about that. And it, and it gets, it gets complicated fast and very so complicated. So I'm not, so I'm glad I know someone like you. Yeah. And it's funny because this is exactly what I was thinking about when I said, I'm absolutely, I would absolutely stand up in a crowded room and say, I'm an expert in student loans. And yeah. still all the time after having done hundreds of these, it's I, so I learn things all the time yes. that are just having me scratching my head. So it's insane. It, it really is. It's insane. It's, it's so complicated, but, yeah. uh, I'm glad you're doing a podcast and I look forward to listening to it. Yeah. And we may leverage some of our mutual friends to try to lend a little I more insight. You should. Um, okay, cool. So in, in uh, wrapping this up, there's one other thing I want to talk about. And this is something that you and I have talked about at length. And it has to do with the financial planner um, engagement. And for a physician who's thinking about, you know, especially I think it's really valuable as we talked about as a, a younger physician, your focus is singular. It's mm -hmm. like usually like handle my loans until they're gone. Uh, right. And then whenever that happens, there's this sort of the curtains lift. And then there's this whole world of opportunity out there where there's a lot of ways to uh, do right or to go wrong. And that can be an opportune time to engage somebody who can help give you a framework to think like, what are the right questions to ask? How do I, what does it mean to build wealth? How, what kind of savings rate should I have? What does it mean to take advantage of pre-tax retirement accounts? What does it mean to have a conversation with my spouse about values and priorities sure. and like where we're going to deploy this extra $2,000 a month that we're about to find? Um, and so in that context, talk a little bit for you about what you recommend uh, in this, uh, you know, the gold standard that you talk about. What is sure. the gold standard for financial advisors? And if I'm looking for an advisor, uh, how do I know if they, they meet that criteria? Sure. Well, let me follow up the, the first comment you just made. So I, I completely agree. 
and the way that I talk about this is that I break physicians up into one of three groups. So the first group is the do it yourself group that tends to, you know, want to learn about the stuff, read about it on their own and figure it out. And they don't want a ton of help. That said, that group's very small. There are two other groups. One of them is the dot your I's, cross your T's group where they have enough knowledge that they, they may be able to do it on their own, but they really want a professional to take a look, sit down, ask questions and hash it out and make sure they're not doing anything stupid with their money, that they're making you know smart financial decisions and that it reflects the values that they have. And the third group, which is rather large, particularly in the medical community, is the outsource group where it's like their lawn care or their child care or their groceries. They, they just want someone else to deal with that stuff because they don't feel like they have the time to do it themselves. Those, that second and third group are rather large. And for those people, they could really benefit from having a financial planner involved in their life. Um, and so the question becomes, well, who do you ask for help? And that is a challenge because really until you know a good amount about personal finance, it is extremely challenging to know what a good advisor looks like, what a good model looks like, and to have a sense for where to get that advice. And so what I try to do on my website is provide a structure. And again, like I said earlier, there's not a one size fits all thing, you know, for anybody, for any personal finance question. That said, um, I think that the, the gold standard model produces the least amount of conflict from the onset or the start of the conversation. So I have basically four criteria for this fee only, meaning that the financial advisor does not make money from commissions. Uh, the, alternate to that would be a fee-based where you do make money from uh, commissions. So fee only, fiduciary, meaning that they are legally or ethically bound to put you first as the uh, client, which is actually really sad that I have to feel like I mentioned that because that implies that there are people out there that don't do that. Uh, The third thing is experience working with people like you. So in this case, doctors. And then I'm a big proponent of flat fee models uh, because it, it, decreases the risk for conflict uh, when you're getting financial advice. So I guess we can start there and tease it out a bit. Yeah, sure. So I think, um, and, and you and I, so when we first met, Jimmy, it was at uh, FinCon a, a year and a half ago now, which is this, FinCon is this financial content conference where it's bloggers and writers and uh, people who produce all sorts of uh, personal finance content. And, and I met you there and we were having this spirited discussion uh, about fees and about what does it mean to, you know, charge a fair fee and what is it, what does an optimal fee model look like? And at that time, my firm quantify planning was functioning in a different fee model. Um, (laughs) That was, you know, honestly, like very closely related and all the fees kind of calculate to the same thing roughly. Uh, But, but now I've uh, evolved a bit more in my thinking. Uh, due to yours and some other input. So maybe talk a little bit about the, that discussion that you and I had and uh, with regards to capped fees and net worth pricing versus AUM. And what, what, does that, what do these words mean? And, and how should I be thinking about it as a physician who's maybe going to hire somebody? Sure. So I think that your job as a client, the physician looking for financial advice, your job is to get the best advice that you can for the fairest price. And so let's just say the cheapest price. That's what I would be doing. If I'm consumer, I want to get the most and pay the least. That's, that's, uh, economics. I I can agree to that. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's exactly your goal. And so the question becomes like, well, how, how do I make sure that I'm doing that? And again, it's challenging because when I met you at FinCon, you know, we went out to launch. I got to know you. I learned about your family. I realized that you're an awesome guy and someone that I would absolutely trust to get financial advice from. But not everybody knows that because they don't know you. You know, they go to your website and they see you know pictures or whatever. Like they they don't know that uh, because they haven't had a chance to sit down with someone like you. And so the first part becomes like, is this is this someone I can trust? And I, I think that your responsibility is to whittle it down to a select group of people and then to choose somebody from that select group uh, to to be the person for you. And and the way to whittle that down is through these you know through that gold criteria. Right. But yeah, the most common model. And this, this occurs in fee-only advising too. So you cannot make money from commissions and still uh, have this model. It's called an AUM or an assets under management model. The idea there being that the person managing your money is going to take a percentage of your assets that are being managed each year. So if you have a million dollars in money that they're managing, then they're going to be paid $10,000 from your assets. It's going to be swept out of your, your accounts yeah. each year. 
if you have $2 million, then it's 20 grand, $3 million is 30 grand, so on and so forth. And so it gets more expensive uh, as you go, which begs one question, is it harder to do as the, as the assets increase? I know that, that there are various opinions out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, uh, the second thing is that, does that model introduce potential conflicts? So what if you want to pay down your mortgage or you want to pay down your student loans or you want to invest in a personal business? And you're putting your money that could be going towards investments towards those things. And you mm-hmm. ask an advisor who's being paid in that model what you should do. Well, there's a conflict. Mm-hmm. Now, the person may be a great human being and, and they may ra- rise above the conflict, but the conflict exists because you're not putting money towards your assets that they would manage and they take a percentage of to get paid. So they would be inclined to tell you not to pay down your mortgage and not to pay off your student loans and not to invest in real estate or to take Social Security earlier, even if those things aren't best for you. Now, will they do that? I don't know. You know, human ethics is a complicated subject, yeah. uh, but they are going to have a, a thought in the back of their heads that I'm going to make less money if I recommend this practice. Yeah. So, and to be clear, let's, let's put some numbers to this. So for you, if you've got half a million dollars in the bank and I'm your money manager, financial planner, whatever you want to call it, hopefully I'm doing financial planning in addition to just running your portfolio because you can get right. portfolio management out there for 20 or 30 basis points. Um, right. So I need to be doing planning for you. But if, I, if you've got half a million and I'm charging you 1%, I'm making $5,000 a year. And if you have some big event, say like uh, you sell your blog uh, right. and you made $250,000 and you have right. this big windfall. Me as your financial planner, if I'm managing your assets and you've got this 250K, I'm looking at that thinking that's another $2,500 a year of revenue for me, the advisor. And so my incentive to give you advice is to say, hey, Jimmy, you should put this 250K in your investment account that I'm going to continue to carefully manage for you. And that may be the right answer, but that is what I, the advisor, am incented to tell you. Whereas if you're like, listen, I hate debt. I want to put half towards my student loans and half towards my mortgage. Um, the net increase to my revenue, if you do that, is zero. Right. And so while for you that might be the, the optimal thing based on your personality and your and your wife's values, for me that's, and I might, you know, I might be able to give you that advice if I know you and care about you and I'm a good guy. But the fee model is conflicted at that point with debt pay down specifically. Debt pay down is, I think, one of the most popular areas of conflict, especially for yeah. early career attendings who are, trying to pay down a mortgage, trying to pay down student loans, because the financial advisor in many cases just doesn't have an alignment of interest in that situation. And I I can't tell you how common this is. I I cannot tell you the number of friends that I have who have a financial advisor who is offering financial planning services. They operate under an AUM and they still have student loans five or 10 years out from training. Yeah. And, and if there's always some excuse or some, you know, well, it's only at 3% and I can earn more in the market. And, and I'm not arguing that you can't leverage your debt and make more in the market. I'm not saying that's wrong. But when you still have student loans, despite earning hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I know what the numbers are, and they're not that high, and you still have them 10 years later, yeah. you have to wonder why you keep getting that advice. Right. And so, unfortunately, it's, it's really, really common. And I have this conversation all the time. And so that flat fee model where you avoid um, some of that, the best way to do that is to, to do it under net worth. So, you know, which is the model that you've recently come to. And, and, and I love that because you get paid more if they do something right and put it in their investments or if they pay off their debt. Either way, their net worth is increasing by doing something that's financially wise. And yeah, you should get, you should get paid for offering that advice, uh, but it should also be something that's not conflicted. So you're not one way or the other going to say, well, I prefer for you to do this, knowing in the back of your mind, you're going to make more money from it because you make money from both. Right. Um, and so as long as your overall price is still fair, I think that that's probably the, the least conflicted way to do it. Yeah, I agree. And so to be clear, if we go back to our original example of you've got half a million that I'm managing for you and you've got some net worth in your home because you've got a mortgage and you've got student debt and me, my job, the, the number that I'm managing and that I'm incented to manage is your net worth, meaning all the stuff that you own, the value in your home, the value in your portfolio, the value in your retirement accounts, minus everything that you owe, your student loans, your mortgage, your credit cards, all that. So as an advisor who's managing the big picture number, i.e. net worth, I'm incented to, I should say I'm indifferent if we invest the money or if we pay down debt, the number, the bottom line net worth number is impacted identically. And so whatever the scale is for how I get paid based on your net worth, uh, you know, if you bump up 
into another bracket. If you have a 250K windfall, your net worth goes up 250K, whether right. or not you invested or paid on debt or whatever. And so the, the fee in that instance is, uh, you know, is going to move uh, regardless of kind of what I tell you to do. Yeah, now, I- the counterpoint to that might be the AUM guy would say, listen, it's actually cheaper. <laughs> it's cheaper for me because uh, every time your net worth goes up, you know, my fee isn't going up. So in that instance, the net worth fee actually would go up either way, right? So I, I'd actually fight back on that because uh, my net worth started at negative $210,000. Yeah. And I, I know others who have negative half a million dollars in net worth. Yep, I know so, them too. <laughs> and so in order for them to go to the next bracket, they're starting... Two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars lower That's right. than the assets under management model, which starts at zero. That's so right. So the brackets actually are, you know, if you adjust them for that starting point, um, you can you can argue that the assets under management model is not cheaper. Yeah, um, that's true. And I don't think that it, uh, at the end of the day, I I obviously picked this model because I like it the best. And right. for somebody who's got a net worth of a negative half a million, they're getting like the deal of a lifetime Huge value because they're not even going to hit the first break point. Until they add a million dollars of net worth and That's go right. from negative 500K to positive 500K. That's exactly right. And, and so, so I think if there's anybody out there who's listening, who's an attending, who's got like negative 300 and negative 500 in net worth, uh, you should run. Don't walk, but run to your nearest. Uh, yeah. Justin you know, Harvey's your guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's absolutely a resource that would pay for itself in spades. Oh, yeah. And and, and I, I completely agree, you know, particularly for those those two groups, which is of physicians, the dot, the eyes, cross the T's and the outsource mm-hmm. group. I mean, those which is the lion's share of doctors. Um, these people need help and they need to get it at a fair price, but they also need to get it, you know, without the conflict if it's possible. Yeah, right. And then I would argue one of the biggest benefits of working with a planner, and we'll close on this. Um, sure. One of the biggest benefits is not, uh, you know, the sort of the economic optimization, although that is a significant benefit. And I would argue it's not even the technical expertise, although that is definitely one of the probably top two. But I think it is a good advisor is going to help you live a life intentionally that reflects your values with your money, with your time, in your family, with your relationships, um, that is going to ultimately just make you happier. Um, So I like to, one of the ways that I can frame this for people is why would you not pay somebody five or seven or $10,000? Granted, it's a lot, but if, if money is not incrementally making you happier and you can spend that in a way that is going to bring hopefully harmony in your marriage and uh, a conversation about common vision and values with your spouse and give you um, insight for how you want to deploy money with generosity and supporting charitable institutions that you like, and also going to worry about all the stuff that you don't want to have to worry about from like a service standpoint, like opening accounts and managing investments yeah. and making sure that you don't step on one of those landmines of making a big mistake. The, the peace of mind and the sort of the personal, being able to achieve personal fulfillment with somebody who's going to show you the way, in my opinion, is the most valuable part of this. Oh no, I and I agree. I I I think that you know you have to separate these conversations. So because because the fee models tend to be based on assets or investment management. Yeah. Uh, people focus on that, but there is the other financial planning piece where you have a financial planner who's available for you know conflicts and within the marriage about how to spend the money or save the money mm-hmm. and being a you know a third person to bounce ideas off of. In addition to that, you also have you know changes in life, right? When someone dies or someone retires or these big moments that happen and what to do with the money or when you, you know, you inherit money from your, your parents when they die. Um, you know, there's so many different situations where having that sounding board would be extremely helpful. Yeah. And you know, that, that's, that's certainly a service that's provided. That's off. That's often not talked about enough. Yeah. And to be honest, you know, I, I started working with a client a couple of weeks ago and had the intro conversation with these two and, uh, they, one of the things they were sharing in the intro discussion was, you know, we feel like we want to be, we want to be more generous with the money that we have. Now, this is one thing that this does ding your net worth. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and so fair. as an advisor, Terrible I'm actually incented to tell you to not give away your money. But yeah. I was telling them, this is one of the things that makes my job the best because I can help you be strategic and sacrificially generous. If that's what you want. Mm-hmm. If you said, I want to give away all my money and fire Justin because we can't afford him anymore. <laughs> I'm going to just tell you right now that I would love to help you do that. 
yeah. there's not enough people out there like that. And I think that's, you know, uh, an example that is really challenging to me. But working with these guys and starting this conversation and being able to see the way that they want to um, positively impact their community and the people around them. And to do that, like linked arm in arm, the, the, this husband and wife together, uh, to be able to take part in that journey for me, I just think is absolutely the best job in the world. And clients like that, um, I just, I tend to really resonate with that mission and to help them develop and mature those ideas to like really maximize what they see as their vision for, for the future. Um, that is something where I just, I have to pinch myself and I can't believe I get paid to do this. It's like the best thing ever. No, that's, that's, that's great. And I mean, I think it's wonderful that they're on the same page and able to do that and have you to help them with it. So that's, that's a winning situation. Yeah. So, um, any words in parting that you want to leave with our listeners? Gosh, it's July. So I guess the advice that I would give is that, uh, whatever transition you've happened to have just gone through that it will get better, that all of us have been there. We've all felt inadequate and a fraud. And, uh, if you are a burned out doctor, there are ways out of it and you can provide yourself options through financial independence. So, I think that uh, getting on the same page with the people around you that you love is important and having a financial planner that can help you do that. If that's, if you're in one of those two groups is, is a helpful way to, to achieve those goals. Cool. We'll leave it with that. Jimmy Turner. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me on Justin. Had a great time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called quantify planning where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiosuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.